Today's show includes conversations about substance use, mental health, and suicide. If you or someone you know is struggling, please know that there is help. Connect with resources like The Trevor Project at www.thetrevorproject.org. Or call the Trans Lifeline at 877-565-8860. Hi, this is Michael Soto. And I'm Sam Garman. You're listening to Transform, the podcast where we explore the stories and experiences of folks who are transgender beyond the transition. One, two, three, four. What did your mom say? What is your real name? How about those drugs that you take? And does your voice change? How come you don't feel ashamed? What kind of love do you make? But you don't care about my answers Your questions ignore me Let me tell you a story So today we are super jazzed to have our good friends Isaac and Anne in the studio with us talking about uh, their work as social workers, specifically around um substance abuse prevention and mental health for the LGBTQ community. Um, we have been wanting to have them come and chat with us for a while. So we're so glad you're here. Um, will you two please introduce yourselves? Sure. Thanks for having us. I, my name is Anne and my pronouns are she, her and hers. Okay. Uh, my name is Isaac and I use the pronouns he, him, his, I'm exploring they, them, theirs. So sharing that with you all for the first time. Um, and I'm a social worker, I'm a trans guy person, and I'm queer. All right. Very nice. Thanks for spending your Friday night with us. We're pretty excited about it. So I think the for us, the first question is, you know, we have, we've sort of, because we're friends, had an opportunity to kind of get a sense of the work that you do, but, um, I'd be really interested to know how you all got into the work that you do. You're both social workers, but how did you specifically get into doing substance abuse prevention and mental health work uh, for our community? Um, so I, I've always wanted to work with the LGBTQ community. Um, I started kind of being a rebel rouser in high school and um, started on my educational path, wanting to be a teacher because I really liked connecting with youth. And then at some point I started taking sociology classes and realized that I wanted to be more in the sociology world and doing social work and maintain that passion for the LGBTQ community. Um, But I fell into kind of substance use prevention and mental health by accident. I'm really someone that's interested in policy and data and and definitely in mental health. Um, But when I moved to Phoenix and was looking for work that happened to be a, um, a position that was available to do substance use prevention with the LGBTQ community. And so there was more of a learning curve on that side, but it's definitely really important uh, to think about and to be doing that work. And so I feel really fortunate to get to do that. So um, similar to Isaac, I have always wanted to work with the LGBTQ community. And I came from the Midwest, if you can already tell. (laughs) <laughs> by my voice usually people what, are like oh wisconsin i'm like oh yeah dang <laughs> um, oh oh gosh there <laughs> don't you know 
<laughs> so um, I had had a previous career in like the corporate world doing marketing um, for uh, an apartment community. And, and then I volunteered with a youth program that I had actually attended as a youth in college. Um, and so just interacting with the social workers and, and volunteering in that program um, really led me to go back to school and get my MSW. So um did that and then moved south for warmer weather and uh, met Isaac through some friends. <laughs> and then when he had an opening in, in the position, um, he let me know and I applied because there was nothing that I wanted to do more than to work with the LGBTQ community. So similarly, the, my learning curve was um, in substance abuse. Um, not necessarily the mental health component of it, but the substance abuse component was what I needed to pick up on. Um, so why is substance abuse uh, such an important to address, important issue to address uh, for this podcast for the trans community? Um, I think what drives me to work in this field every day is just knowing that we often as a society sort of chase the substance and we go after kind of this approach where like drugs are bad or do you, you're bad if you do drugs, this is going to hurt your body. And we just throw money at programs and at substances specifically and hope that it sticks without ever really addressing the underlying issues that might lead to disconnection or the need to experiment with substances or underlying addiction and, and in access to services. And so um, it can be really hard to do that work and educate the general population and say, it's not because that we're trans that we're using, but all of these things are happening. And so this is maybe a coping strategy that has worked for me, or this is the way I disconnect around my dysphoria or around my internalized transphobia. Um, and to be able to address some of those root causes in a way that's culturally specific and intentional and say, let's really work on these underlying things and bring that because we are the only ones in this capacity kind of in Maricopa County um, in this way. So we have to connect with our partners to do it and make sure that we're getting the word out. Um, but otherwise, it's we don't really see it a lot. And it can be hard to kind of air that dirty laundry and say, hey, we have an issue. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah. can, you know, share that with the community when like, you, I have so much going on. Now you want to take away my alcohol. You want to uh -huh. take away this substance. You're taking away my last bit of hope. And so I think that can be really... Um, challenging and a delicate dance to kind of do. And so uh, so I think it's kind of important to address. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess I was um, more interested in, in focusing on and why it's important to the trans community specifically, because there are so few supports out there. Um, and we're talking about, you know, marginalized population within a marginalized population. So, um, you know, the LGBTQ community as a whole utilizing substances at a higher rate than um, cisgender and heterosexual folks um, is alarming. But then if you go even further and, and realize that there's even fewer safe places for trans people, so there's no, you know, we can probably all think of a gay bar, but like, has anybody thought of a trans bar or other way to like meet people that doesn't involve using alcohol or any other kinds of substances? So recognizing that there's even fewer outlets for support and for socializing, uh, even just m meeting friends, um, that becomes a lot more 
difficult when you're um, kind of moving in this community. Well, I think it's interesting the idea about how much um, queerness and transness is pathologized in the in the like general understanding uh-huh. it's like oh they're like there's still the narrative that like those people are sick and so i'm guessing it's hard to then be like to to be the guy that's like so we all we definitely have an alcohol issue in our community and we need to talk about it in the context of the larger culture being like well you all are sick and then feeling like okay am i a traitor to my community because i am bringing this up i could see that there's a lot of tension in that and trying to knowing what's good for the community and working towards that, but also knowing that like there's maybe that's maybe misunderstood by the rest of the world. Yeah. I I feel like that I walk around with like a disclaimer tag on all day where it's like, this is really important information, but it doesn't define us uh, Mm -hmm. because so often we talk with the community or providers and they want to concentrate on like, well, you're probably depressed because you're trans. It's like, no, I'm probably depressed because maybe I do have underlying mental health or maybe it is situational where I'm depressed because I can't get access to what I need to feel good in my skin or my family has rejected me or I'm worried about my partner or maybe I'm anxious because I'm worried about being misgendered all day Um, or maybe I'm a thousand percent fine in my gender and my body and I just have other things that I need to work on. Um, So it is like it can be a real challenge to wade through that. Um, pathology and figure out where is what I'm feeling coming from. And we go through that ourselves internally. Like, what is it today? Like, is it about how I'm feeling or is it this other thing that's bugging me or Uh am I being bogged down by my identity today? Cause X, Y, Z happened. So I think even for ourselves, it can be hard to narrow down some of those nuances and then find someone that we can share that with and go, go through and pull that apart with. Yeah. Yeah. I'm also, I'm also wondering like, I'm guessing that if you are known to people professionally and personally as people who do alcohol, like substance abuse prevention work, that then anytime you are at dinner and someone's ordering a glass of wine, it's like, um, I mean, just, it's like just one glass of wine. And I just want you to know, I don't have like a drinking problem. Does this happen to you all the time? I was fine until I met Isaac. And then, (laughs) and then I was like, oh gosh, like, wow. I, yeah, there's a lot of people I know. And actually how many drinks is that? Cause you've just reached binge drinking levels (laughs) and I'm concerned. (laughs) We, we're not invited to parties anymore. No. <laughs> Invite us to your parties, please. We won't shame you. <laughs> All of our friends are in this room right now. <laughs> it is, and it's funny at, like, work functions, too, because I'm really aware of, like, there's a lot of mixers that happen in the community, so can I go to a networking event where maybe I'm not on the clock, but I'm doing my thing, and I'm, like, talking about my program. Um, and if I mention it, then people are like hiding their cocktails and like running away. I'm like, no, no, it's fine. It's just, how are you getting home? It's okay. <laughs> I was invited to a party a couple of months ago. And like as an afterthought, the person was like, by the way, we smoke a lot of pot. And I was like, okay, <laughs> well, maybe that's not the place for me to go. Um, because it is a small community and so there's so much, so much overlap at times that it's just like, no, that I can't, I can't go to a party and see you do this and then look at you on like Wednesday and tell you that that's not great. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that has to be a bit of a, a rough balance to strike. 
definitely. Yeah, because we're never here to like to like shame or blame. And when we're doing our our education, it's just about being being safe and making decisions for yourself. And if you know, you know, and especially we work with youth, and so that's really where we focus our efforts is with youth and young adults to be able to make those decisions at young ages and know that. They're getting mixed messages, um, but they're having very real experiences. Like today we were uh, meeting with some high school students and asked why why do you think people use, and one of them mentioned like internalized homophobia. So we know we just want to like support the issues that they're going through without saying like, if this is your coping mechanism, we're gonna, we're gonna like shame you. And so mm-hmm. we don't want like, we never want that to be the message with our youth that we work with or our friends or the community. Right. Um, it's just about sharing information and take it or leave it and do with it what you want because that's kind of, that's also the social work thing. Like, do, you're going to do what you want to do, and we're just going to support you with some information. Uh-huh. Um, and that just happens to really align with me personally. Is there, with youth, is there the, the same <clears throat> memory that perhaps we have when, um, you know, queerness uh, was in the DSM, was like an official, you know, mental health uh, disorder and treated like that in public? I mean, I grew up mm-hmm. knowing that, you know, those sorts of things were, um, were, a mental disease or a mental illness? Is there the same sort of stigma with youth? Um, I don't... That's a really hard question that's pretty specific ge- geographically. Um, Arizona is a, a very particular kind of state. Um, and so... <laughs> Whatever could you mean? <laughs> I have no idea. Um, that messaging is not so ancient history. Right. Um, I say ancient because I'm like so old. When yeah. I talk when I talk to like 13 year olds and they're like, "Whoa!" <laughs> like, were there phones when you were a kid? <laughs> not that old, jeez. Um, so, like a little bit, but it has actually like I think um, we've heard more of the trans community talking about that. The the L, the G's and the B's uh-huh. have like zero recognition of it having been in the DSM unless they're like really super sophisticated, which is not like, I mean, a lot of them are. And so some of them know, um, I mean, somebody told me today they were reading studies about marijuana usage and I was like, okay, well, I could barely do my homework when I was in high school. So, um, but in other States, I think that, um, all of the community is it's pretty ancient for them. Mm-hmm. They they know a little bit about it, but it's you know, they think it's way further in the in history than it actually is. Yeah. So um we do I and my colleagues around the country do our best to educate kids about that's not so long ago. Like and this fight isn't just about like marriage equality. There's so much more to it, and and reeducating them about history, like the Stonewall riots, and saying, mm-hmm. "Well, what you think you knew <laughs> was really a whitewashed <laughs> cisgender <laughs> um, story, fairy tale about how we co-opted a very um, distinctly trans and person of color movement." Yeah. Michael, your question has dumped me. Yeah. I'm like, okay. I don't, I don't know. That's really interesting to think about, like, how they conceptualize their identity in terms of health and mental health. I feel like oh. they have more information now, so they are unapologetically who they are, and it's more like society just deal with it and family just deal with it. And my doctors don't get it, and they won't let me do what I want to do. Oh. But I don't know. 
I don't I don't know. Um, for for our trans youth, if they run into those um, barriers medically and with their doctors, I know that they do, but I don't know if they are told the mental health information. Like one time, I sat down with a therapist and I told her I was trans, and she like pulled the DSM off the shelf and like clipped a page. 490 and was like this is what you are and i was like yeah what are you holding right now uh what is that why are you trying to like diagnose me from a book um so i don't know if if youth are having i feel like we need to have those conversations now yeah i mean i don't know i asked because like when i came out those things happened right therapists opened the dsm and were like that's how you're sick yeah this is your mental illness this is your dysphoria um and also there was at the time, I don't know if this is still true, um, but there was a movement in kind of older, um, at the time, so 20 years ago, uh, folks that I was a young in, so everybody was old to me then, uh, <laughs> um, sort of a part of the trans community that was advocating for transness being a mental illness and a disability. And so it's, you know, there's a lot of evolution in our community and our movement very quickly. Um, and so I'm just curious about what the that has an impact, right? That has an impact on how we understand ourselves and how much shame we internalize and how much agency we feel in our own transitions and our own lives. And so I, I don't work yeah. with you. So I'm curious about how that's, it's good to hear that they're unapologetic. That certainly wasn't how I felt when I came out. Which even yeah. that like served its purpose for a yeah. second, like yeah. for the ability to access medical care and right. and transition and get the things that you need. And so um, our kids nowadays are a little bit more savvy in that what they can do. I mean, the advent of the internet and YouTube, and they could all rattle off half a dozen or a dozen YouTube stars that they followed for years before they come out. Really? Yeah. Like when we wow. ask like who, you know, who are your trans role models or who are your queer role models? And they're naming social media stars um, that for better or for worse have been documenting their transitions for years. And so um, they're, they're like, no, I got this list. Like I need to go to the doctor. I need to ask for testosterone or estrogen, or this is the doctor I want to go to. These are, this is how I'm going to have surgery. If I'm going to have surgery, I'm not going to. So like a lot of those decisions are made ahead of coming out to their families. Um, And it, it can be, I think that's how it can be a little startling for the families when um, kids who are just like so full of energy and already know everything in the world are like, no, so this is what's happening and here you go, get on board. Yeah. Well, and I think it's interesting. Like there's a, I think there's a part of me that's always tempted to believe like it, it is so much easier for kids now than it was for kids when we were growing up. Like it's, it just must be such an easier path. And I know in some ways it is in, in some ways because representation exists at, at levels that, I mean, I was in, I was at the near the end of, mm, I'm going to get this wrong. What year did Ellen come out on her show? It was before just I like the out. 25th anniversary, like two years ago. Yeah, it was a couple years before. Yeah, we we're out. like way old. Yeah. It was in the 90s. It was, it was like, in the, like 97, 96. Yeah. So I was, <laughs> I was in high school when Ellen came out. Yeah. And so like until that point, there were no gay people. And then when there was a gay person, she promptly lost her show. Uh-huh. Right. And so like now, now there are like 15 TV shows with prominently gay characters and kids are seeing representation in a way that they have never seen. We've never seen it before. And so 
in some ways they're so it's so different and so i just i think it's an interesting question to see like how young people conceptualize their world uh-huh. um and how different it is for when we were coming up. And this is maybe the conversation that's made us sound older than anything else we've done on this podcast. <laughs> Quite possibly. <laughs> what are yes. the kids doing these days? Oh, these adolescents. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I And I think it's important to recognize that not only are we seeing more representation for the community as a whole, but like good and healthy representation yeah, as yeah. opposed to just like, this is the person we got. So let's all get on board and support this one person. We're getting to see people that we know and, you know, prominent trans people that we just talked about before we started that are like, no, that person's a no go for me. I don't ever want to talk about them. They have nothing to do with me and they're not like a good and healthy person for the community. So being able to recognize people and being able to, to reject their, you know, involvement in unhealthy ways is also yeah. really, really important because these kids are seeing like healthy and unhealthy, which, yeah. you know, we can't all be the same. True. Well, and just, I think it's, it makes a difference seeing trans people represented in media, not cis people playing trans people and yeah. queer, gay, you know, lesbian, bisexual and queer people representing themselves in media. I mean, after Ellen, there was Will and Grace, right? Where the title character is a straight man playing a gay man stereotype of a gay man right and having mm-hmm. the only actually queer person on the show uh, for the most part of main character just being a massive stereotype right mm-hmm. um which unfortunately is back and has not changed much but a little uh, bit like a tiny yeah. bit they're like making some apologies for ways that they behaved before because like i've watched old villain grace and i'm just like e there's like some really cringeworthy comments and jokes and like as like becoming at like as a cis person becoming more aware of the trans community and me going like hey that was not like that was not okay why did you say that and they're they're trying to say sorry and make amends in in the best way that they can for entertainment (laughs) television i mean it's not not great but then we also look at you know new shows that have come out like pose which is an amazing show that um has employed a lot of trans people playing trans people which is really great well and i think it's really interesting to see there are a bunch of there, there are several shows i could think of right now who have trans characters where being trans is not actually the like primary part of their storyline that like that's a one part of their identity but it's not like they've mentioned it once and then it's actually not come up again because Uh it's just like a part of who they are but it's not their whole character and i think that is really powerful for for our community to see for trans folks to see i mean it's a that's a that's a powerful thing where it's just like this doesn't have to be the whole thing about you yeah well done Grey's anatomy <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was like, please let him say Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> also, Supergirl has a, a yes. young trans woman on this year, this yes. season, and she like said it in one episode, and then it's like nothing else about it. Um, she has like this whole other, and for I I know that with the especially like the comic book type shows, there are a whole lot of young people who are engaging in that, and that is that's a powerful thing to see a young trans woman be able to be just kind of like a full developed character absolutely and she's just like an average run-of-the-mill trans person just living and doing a job like that's all she wanted was like i just want a job and like the fact that they you know nodded at the community and then moved on was like yeah this is just like it's just one piece yep 
Mm-hmm. You don't need to use trans as like the qualifier before you introduce me. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> although she's actually a really amazing person in real life too. Really? I understand that that is true. Yeah. Yeah. Who is this actor? Oh gosh, I can't remember her name. But she, um, she's a twin who came out, and um, there's a book about her and her sibling and their family and their story of transitioning. She was involved in the family was involved in a pretty big lawsuit against the school district for um, refusing to allow her to use the bathroom. Like, and the family had to move like multiple times as like people outed them. And so um, it was a it was like a really big lawsuit that they won just a couple years ago after she had already graduate obviously but that's amazing yeah she's a she's a pretty big rock star sounds like it yeah uh speaking of things like lawsuits and policy um you know we live in the time of the trump administration there have been massive impacts of that administration to i mean pretty much every facet of life for trans people uh, from healthcare to employment to education um what are the policy implications of this or impacts of this administration on substance abuse and mental health for the LGBT community. Yeah. Yeah. So this is why we're like, we're not talking about where we work so we can speak freely about, you know, because I think it's really important to be able to have these conversations. Um, And I think that's going back to one of your earlier questions about why it's important to do substance use and mental health work within trans and queer communities is because we have to be able to talk about and recognize the impact about policy and decisions made by administrations and governments and the impact on mental health. And sometimes people shy away from it because it's inherently political um, and they don't want to pick a side or get involved. And so we keep saying, we don't want to get involved. We can't make a statement. We can't take a stand. Mm. But by not taking a stand, you are taking a stand. And so we see that there's very real and direct connections between um, discriminatory policy and mental health implications. And so some of that is just clear in um, around the time when um, the administration made recent announcements or um, when when he announced the trans ban or he announced anything that impacts the community, we hear from the trans lifeline that the spikes in calls goes up. Mm -hmm. Um, That's because people are panicked and they're scared and they're not sure what's going to happen. And so it puts everyone in a state of unease Um, And he's done a really great job of having us run from fire to fire to fire and just be exhausted and worn out from um, worrying about, am I going to have health access? Am I going to be deported? Am I going to be detained? Am I going to be locked up? Um, And then he, you know, has all this money that he he decides that we're going to spend on opioids. And so he's the substance use prevention world's hero. And so that also is like a really weird place to be in. And so there's some money earmarked, but it doesn't do any good because we are not recognizing the damage and the harm that's being done. I mean, our kids get panicked by it because they sometimes don't understand what's happening. We don't know what's happening. So it's not even like a youth thing. It's just like a what the fuck's going on kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, But now we're starting to be able to have more data pieces that show from the U.S. Trans Health Survey and from statewide data and national data that discrimination... um, directly impacts health and mental health. And so we're able to frame it as a public health issue. If I can't go to the bathroom, if I don't feel safe, if I can't see my doctor, if I think that I'm going to be deported, if I can't join the military, if I can't keep a job, I mean, like, I don't need to keep going, right? Um, It impacts your mental health. And if you can't see your doctor, what's easier to get to? 
how am I going to cope? Uh, so we have to really look at that and be able to, to, to take a more active role in um, the social work world and mental health practitioners of really taking a stance to support our communities. Yeah, when we interviewed Mara Kiesling, she talked about how um, the the idea that like really any big issue of inequity can be the most important issue in a trans person's life, like whether mm-hmm. it's lack of access to healthcare or lack of access to you know like immigration stuff or military stuff, like whatever that that could be the biggest thing. And so, really, all of those issues are potentially issues for the trans community to tackle that really matter. And I think you, I mean, I think you're nailing it with that same idea that like any one of those things then impacts mental health for trans folks and that that work is important. And so you all do suicide prevention stuff too. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what, like what that work looks like? Yeah. Um, that, <laughs> It's like a specific topic, but how that can be supported looks a whole lot different depending on like where we are and who we're talking to. And so, um, you know, the stats are, are real unfortunate. And when we don't have the support from, um, lots of other communities or, you know, the nation as a whole, we work a little extra harder in making sure that our youth know our youth and our adults know that they're loved and they're needed and they're cared for. And, um, you know, trying to make those, those connections and, um, giving them access and constantly posting, you know, self-care tips and reminders and, um, sharing crisis lines and, and letting people know that there are, there are places to talk about this regardless of how remote you are. Um, and so for the community, it's, it's reminding them that there is a community behind them, even if it doesn't feel like it at times. Um, for the providers, it's, you know, a lot of times we have to go in from square one and educate them. Um, so that can, that can be kind of a, a handful um, to do. And so we start there and gauge like their their knowledge of the community as a whole before we introduce statistics about specific segments mm-hmm. of um the community and so yeah it's just it can be a it can be a lot but it's you know we can't if we don't have the trained <laughs> providers um to to work with the community then it, that doesn't it doesn't make anything better it makes it worse so we spend a lot of time trying to get in front of as many people as we can that um might interact with somebody in the trans community or um the queer community as a whole and let them know like you know even little things like using the right name using the right pronouns you know changing up your forms making sure that you're being um open and affirming um can make dramatic dramatic differences in suicide rates and um the mental health of the community i feel like we've also started to get a little bit bolder this year and more direct and maybe ann and i are just tired like i'm so tired (laughs) we're so tired of having these same conversations with providers Mm -hmm. um and hearing our community g- talk about going in to see their doctor and having to explain things over and over, or my doctor said this, or my therapist said that, and our providers going, 
I don't know why they blew up in session. It was just the first time I made a mistake. And so we started to have conversations about microaggressions, which I don't think is very radical, but feels that way. Sometimes you just don't know, like, are they going to kick me out of the room? Or sometimes I feel like, wow, I'm about to yell at them for something they haven't done. Like, no, they've done it. Like, <laughs> I'm for sure that they've probably done it. I've, I've, you know, made errors. Of course, we all make mistakes. And so, and usually somebody will... It's a little bit awkward when they do the microaggression before we get to that slide. And we're like, Oof. remember, Bob, when you said this five <laughs> minutes ago, don't do that in front of your client. Yeah. Um, so sometimes it's just kind of taking the hits in the room. It's like, get that out here with me yeah, and figure out your language. Ask the messy questions. Get out your transphobia. Do what you need to do because you cannot walk into that room and do that to your client. Um, and so I say that I'm like, well, we need some <laughs> self care around that too. Yeah. Um, but just trying to make sure that like, that's the space where they do it so that they're not working out with their client. Mm. Please educate me. But Hey, I know these things. I know this is what it, this is my understanding of what it means to be trans. And this is really important. What does that look like for you? So they can get into that deep, those deeper conversations so that you can make the most of your visit with your healthcare provider. Yeah. Um, and that to me is a form of suicide prevention because they're not having to get bogged down and they can just get to what they need to get to and get the support and be more likely to return and engage in treatment. Yeah. I'm actually really proud of our work on microaggressions. And I feel like some of it started from your podcast. Cause we, I think we were just listening one day and we were like, you know what? Yeah, we're done. Like we don't need this. <laughs> shit anymore um (laughs) because like as anybody working in the lgbtq community knows like most of the time you're in the corner jumping up and down being like please let me talk to you like hey i just i just need to tell you this one thing about our community like you know and so just getting invited (laughs) to the table is like um it's not an honor right like it should be like or it shouldn't be but like it feels like it's an honor yeah Yeah, you're like oh thanks for even you know recognizing me as a human that's awesome um it should be a basic requirement right yeah it should be like standard information for everybody um but so like we just one it was like one day literally we had heard a particularly awful (laughs) microaggression and we were driving back from (laughs) from the presentation i was just like I, I can't do this anymore like we need to say something like i am sick of like begging to be invited to the table and then apologizing for telling them that they're wrong like this mm-hmm. this can't happen anymore and so we we literally sat down and like thought of like what are the things we hear all the time let's save them and then drill it down more like why do you think you're saying that like oh like i never would have guessed you were trans like cool thanks <laughs> Um, <laughs> I really pulled one over on you, right? Like, not a yeah, like, what are you trying to say there? So like drilling down for them, like, this is what you think you're saying, but what the community actually hears is like, I just, I can't even, <laughs> you <laughs> like, surpassed my stupid. expectations of you. Right. Like, I never would have thought because you looked too good or you yeah. look like a real boy. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so like, you're not you're real. That, yeah. Right. It's just like. People say that and they're like, oh, but I, but, uh, uh, and I'm like, when you talk and you say that stuff back to me, I just hear like, mah, 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 mah. like you're not trying. So like, why are you a provider if you don't even want to try um, to meet this community and understand basic human decency, like right. get on board. So um, <laughs> we just were done one day and we we're like, all right, let's do this. 
And we're not sorry. You're wrong. We're not sorry. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you, Bob. Bob, you're wrong. <laughs> I don't know who Bob is, but he was wrong. There's a Bob really in every box. class. He's right? really wrong. He was really wrong. He's he wrong. He's success to Brenda and Karen. <laughs> and Janet from accounting. <laughs> Damn it, Janet. <laughs> um, so do you guys talk in your trainings about policy and the way that policy interacts with how like providers work with Either young people or the adult community. When animal let me get on my soapbox. <laughs> it's my favorite soapbox to get on. Um, yeah, I, some, sometimes we, we do. Sometimes we run out of time because we've spent 25 minutes defining the word queer and why it's okay to use and it's not a slur and it's not the 70s. And oh, wow. you use the terms that people want to use. So we don't often get to that because it's like at the end of some of our presentations yeah, yeah. um but i feel like we did a really cool thing for um a suicide prevention conference this year yeah. where we we really shook up we did like a we did a prezi so that immediately impressed people oh, hey, mm, look at them with the technology i know even though like there are a lot of sweat it took us like a month to figure it out and we're like oh, God, why is it so hard why what why is it not moving <laughs> um so we did like a meso micro macro progression and said this is what's happening in, on the interpersonal level. Here's what's happening on the meso level. Here's the macro policy level. Great. You got 25 minutes of information. Break up into five groups. Come up with the solutions. And talked about what are some of the policy implications? What do you think needs to happen? And so I think that was one of the few times that we really dug in a little bit more. Um, and it was just on the heels of the announcement of the leaked memo oh, of yeah. the changing of the definition of sex and gender. So we had oh. to back up a little bit and kind of have a conversation about why that was important and then how that directly relates to suicide prevention. Um, and just like defining the very essence of your being is really important for your mental health. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so we got into the weeds in that a little bit. And there was, a, I think the room liked it. I think that they really appreciated the shakeup of, of the format and being able to have those conversations. Because I don't want to just tell you the problem. Like right. we all know the problem. Yeah. What is the answer? Like, give me the solution. Mm -hmm. I'm sick of talking about the problem, like sick to death. Right. And that was, that policy was like super rough. Cause like Isaac and I had to take a minute on our own to like process this and like get through our own feelings um, as rapidly as we could so that we could support the people that we work with. Right. And that even it meant explaining to like coworkers, like, why is this a shitty day for you? Like, well, here, here, Karen, this is why it's a shitty day. Um, let me tell you. Listen Linda. <laughs> listen, Linda. If somebody came out with a policy and said, like, you don't exist, how would that feel? Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. And we're only talking about, like, one one component of that identity. So when you imagine the onslaught <laughs> and the attack on the rest of people's identities, and you're talking about, like, um, you know, people with intersecting identities and like how that can just like feel like who like every day yeah. um but we we knew that we needed to get there and and explain and a lot of time that's what we're doing is trying to be this bridge between the community and the cis world that's not understanding which i think is sometimes why isaac and i make a good pair <laughs> you're the cisplainer yeah i cisplain everything to people i'm like well see when he gets scrappy it's because <laughs> it's because he fights really hard and he's really tired and i like 
I'm gonna step up here and tell you that, like, as an ally, you all suck. You need to do better. <laughs> nice, well done. We we trade with our emotional levels. I think that helps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, we have a really good read on each other. Like, I can look at Isaac and be like, "Is today the day? Like, are we gonna are we gonna talk about the thing today? <laughs> no, nope, not today. Okay, like, and it can be hard. Like, w- when we're talking about our own identities in a room." Um, which like, you're not wanting to be like, yeah, this is, this is why I'm an expert. But like, sometimes you need to be like, this is why I'm an expert. So hey, listeners, I'm cis, but I'm also queer. (laughs) And I, there's a lot of people that I love that are trans. And so, um, you know, explaining why we were there and why we're experts, uh, sometimes needs to happen. And sometimes it's just not safe. And we, we cut it off as soon as possible and i shoot isaac like mental messages and i'm like do not say a word today because i cannot scrape the pieces of you off the floor like i need you we need to finish this we got 10 minutes we can do it buddy let's get through it yeah Yeah, that's it do you read the room before you before you disclose your status as a trans person like is that kind of is that part of the dance that you do as you're training non lgbtq folks yeah, it, it's it's a daily kind of how am I going to self-disclose today? And again, part of that is like heavily social work because from a social work framework, um, self-disclosure is also part of the art and the science behind social work about is this serving me or is this serving you mm-hmm. so that you don't spend the therapy session unloading on your client. And so I always think about like, what is my level of comfort for self-disclosure? What is this serving? And then I think with identity, it is self-serving. Like I'm just going to choose to be me or I'm not going to choose to share this with you because I don't want to answer the questions. Um, so I don't often come out in my intro to the room. I'll share my name and um, and pronouns, and they'll assume whatever they want about me. I'm typically read as um, cis. I'm n- I don't think that I'm red as straight. I find that hard to believe. Yeah, yeah, no. If y'all no, can't see the big, bun. That's um, big no. no. <laughs> so I think people just assume I'm just like a short little queer man, which is not totally 100% inaccurate. Um, But I will wait until um, I have said too many times they when talking about trans folks. That's really hard where I really struggle where I'm like, trans people are this and this is what Mm. they are. And this is how they feel. And it's, it's really, it starts to feel a little bit weird. And so sometimes I'll, I'll switch and I'll say we and I'll use examples. But it, I, if it's too subtle for the audience, they won't always get it. So sometimes I just have to be like, I am trans. Hello. And they're like, wait, so are you a trans woman? Which way are you going? Like, they'll just start at like, yeah, that's... sometimes I don't want to <laughs> deal with those questions. You're um, like, were you listening to the last 20 minutes? <laughs> microaggression slide 30. <laughs> Let me go back a couple slides. <laughs> and then I'll, I'll pair with Anne. I know there was one particular training I think we're both thinking about where um, someone was just like, I don't want your perspective. And I hadn't disclosed anything yet. And he just made a whole load of assumptions. And the stuff he was saying was nonsense. Um, and Ann and I just had like this, it's not safe to disclose. And I should, I don't think that I'm going to do it. It was also at work, um, which is a whole other host of things. Typically we go into other agencies so I can drop a lot of stuff, then run away and never have to see them. Mm-hmm. But if we work with them, it can make it a little bit more challenging. <laughs> Um, so that's always kind of a professional dance. But one day in a, um, yes. <laughs> I met with a GSA at a high school and, um, I just said, Hey, I'm, I'm Isaac and I'm trans. And I shared that right away. And for some reason that day, it felt really important to do. Um, and I think there was another youth workshop when I was like, I just want you to see that there's 
people that are doing the work and you can do this too. And then sometimes I don't disclose with youth. Um, yeah. I don't know if you want to add from a cis queer perspective. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, we, we like we're funded for LGBTQ issues, but like we spend a lot of time talking about trans issues and identities because there's so few conversations about it Mm. that we, we just arbitrarily made the decision. That's what we were going to do. I think so we, so we kind of go through, and that's also like more people don't have that knowledge. So we, we go through that rapidly and get to um, trans identities a little faster. And so, um, I sometimes feel like I'm personally representing the rest of the letters, <laughs> um, <laughs> which can be like, oh, this is great. Because <laughs> I'm often read as straight as well. And so um, it's just a really interesting relationship we have in the work that we do. I don't. I kind of wandered off. I don't know where I was going. <laughs> okay. I'm a well, cis person out in the wild, <laughs> unaccompanied. <laughs> Very honored to be on this podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, and and so we invited you not just because, um, like, we didn't just were like, what cis person could we have? But right. you have proven yourself over the years that we've known you to be a really fantastic ally, um, but also your work in and for the community that we all represent, but especially for the trans community has been exemplary. And so that's, that is why we invited you because of the, because of the great work you have done for the trans community. Yeah. Oh, thank you. That means a lot. I was told there would be an award. Um, I, you know, I just feel like, you know, Isaac and I are coworkers, but friends, but, um, I also feel like some level of like protectiveness over him and over all trans people I know. And so when I go into these, you know, trainings or out in the community, making sure that like, I'm doing what I can to, to protect the people that I know. And if that means, you know, me stepping up and being the hard line and, um, or, you know, telling Isaac to just go, just leave, um, or don't do this thing. I want to do this for you because it can be, it can be a lot. So like, there's that point when I can like take that on and kind of like mother, (laughs) mother, all my trans boys. Um, (laughs) but like afterwards too, it's just like, this is, this like so hard and there have been times where Isaac has had to like take one for me like I'm just not feeling it today like I can't you know I try as often as I can to step up as an ally but there are times when it's just it's too much and you gotta step outside yourself and um take a take a little breather and tell Karen to (laughs) shut up (laughs) sit down Karen (laughs) yeah and it's consensual mothering I'll add because um it's not always welcome for folks to like kind of jump in on like, I'm going to do this for you and take care of you. But I feel like Anne and I have like a, a really good dynamic to where um, we can read each other. And I think that teaming is really important in mental health work. And because it's, we, we depress people. We go into workshops, we tell them all the bad news. We have meetings, we tell them awful news. We tell people why they're doing things wrong. And so it's like really heavy work a lot. And so to be able to have like a, hey, are you okay? Like, and check in with the inner reminders, like to check in with yourself. I think that that's really important. And I feel really fortunate in that. And so that we can like do that for 
each other. I think that's part of that self-care piece. Yeah, definitely. And that community piece, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, we're all part of a larger community, but in sort of dynamics, especially like where you work together, you have your own little micro community here where you're caring for each other and see each other as full humans uh, beyond just the work you're doing and the goals you're trying to accomplish in your work, but as people that deserve to be well and happy and safe. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, you all talked about um, a few episodes ago about allies stepping up and, like, doing what they can and picking up fights that aren't theirs that they might have, like, all of the energy in the world for. And that really just, like, hit something in me, like, yeah, I need need to do that. And so there are instances that can be, like, emotionally hard for me. Like, I remember seeing you all at... um, trans day of remembrance which is not my favorite day in the world (laughs) it is like one of my least favorite days um but just recognizing that like i needed to be there that night so that i could do things to free up energy for other people to pursue what they needed to pursue um in that time whether that be you know just the the remembrance the the caring the mourning um you know whatever it was that needed to happen i recognized that in that instance I could step up and say, like, hey, you go do what you do. I'm not going to tell you what to do. Like, as a cis person, I'm not going to tell you what to do. Right. Um, but you you do what you need to do. So, um, yeah, Isaac and I definitely have a, a relationship that's taken years to get to. So making sure that you're not overstepping your bounds and being like, oh, let me handle this for you because I'm going to – you know, it's more about like recognizing like this is my, this is my privilege, not like I'm going to exert my privilege, but I'm going to own my privilege and help where I can. We include an ally moment in every episode because we know that there are lots of you listening who aren't trans, uh, but you're listening because there's probably someone in your life that you really care about that is trans or you want to be a good ally to the trans community. So these moments are for you and they're all about how uh, you can best support the trans friends and loved ones in your life. Um, So the other piece is working with the community directly. And so we do... um, skills training to help one another recognize signs of um, warning signs around mental health and suicide and risk. And I think that's important to point out because we do need to be there for one another um, and just be able to recognize those early warning signs and intervene. And so sometimes we have some really difficult conversations with one another and working that out and what that could look like and with the community, because we know that the traditional routes of you see someone in a mental health crisis, call 911 is not always safe. It's not always the right move. And that can be really hard for people to understand um, because we tell youth, if you see something, say something. We tell adults, if you see something, say something. And so they feel like, well, if you've taken my 911 option away, you've taken away all of my options. Mm -hmm. So we really try to emphasize supporting one another and checking in with your friends. So a lot of the suicide messaging is like, reach out, reach out, reach out, let us know. But if you've ever been in that state, you know how difficult it is to reach out. Or if you've ever been, if you've experienced anxiety or depression, it can be really hard to reach out. So we um, encourage folks to reach in and help. If you see someone struggling, if you haven't heard from someone in a while, if you're seeing something, reach out to that person and here's what you can do to help them. Um, And so we need to have an alternate community response and have more, um, people that are trained, more lay people and more community members trained, more mental health responders trained, because unfortunately, sometimes 911 is your last option, and sometimes that's the appropriate course of action to take. Um, but sometimes it doesn't end well right. um, and it ends in further harm. And so it can be really challenging to make 
the decision about who am I going to call for help, who am I going to get. If I call the crisis line, they're going to send somebody out in two hours. And what's that going to be like? It's going to, because they can't run red lights and they can't come right away. Um, But I can call the trans lifeline and talk to someone immediately. And they're going to wait for my consent to send police out to my house. And so knowing um, if the community can be educated on what are my avenues for support, what's going to be safe, and what would that person want, Mm -hmm. and give that person as much agency and efficacy over what's happening to them, that's going to really help with their mental health outcome. I think you've hit on something really important there, not just for cis folks, but also an opportunity for trans folks to ally with other trans folks who maybe Mm -hmm. have different racial or um, different uh, sort of other factors in their life that contribute to the multiple forms of uh, oppression that they experience, right? Um, It isn't calling the police or being aware of how systems of oppression interact with our multiple identities, not just as trans people, but also as maybe immigrants or people of color or people with uh, mental health challenges or disabilities. Um, That really impacts how safe that person is at the end of that interaction, right? Yeah, and, and recognizing that there might be fear because of yeah. immigration status or yeah. how am I going to pay? If I'm hospitalized, mm-hmm. I might get pulled away from work. I might, mm-hmm. yep. I'm going to end up with this bill. Um, and we want you to be alive and in debt versus dead, right? Like right. that's our end goal is to keep you alive mm-hmm. and well. Right. But if that's going to add additional stress, it's kind of a call to action to the community to figure out what are our alternate responses so that people do feel like they have more of a choice as you're experiencing a mental health crisis and are dealing with substance use, where are those safe and welcoming places to go that I can get the help that I need? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, I, it's educating the community, and I guess I feel like my personal like uh, call to action is to make sure that you're helping on the back end to create these place, these safe spaces. And so, you know, we can tell people like, um, you know, seek out a trans friendly provider, but if there's only five in the County, um, that's kind of an issue. So making sure that you're, you're getting other people um, educated using resources. I think that you had Ashton on talking about uh, Qtopia. Mm-hmm. So utilizing resources and creating, you know, these lists of people. Um, I mean, I wish everybody was, trans knowledgeable but they're not and so in in the meantime creating these safe havens even if they're pocketed is better than nothing and so doing that and continuing to create you know educational opportunities everywhere whether it's a kindergarten class or you know people educating <laughs> educating the people that are going to be in charge of kindergarten classes um and and working up from there and finding um the allies and and really asking them to continue stepping up is, is super important. Yeah, for sure. And with, um, within the community, I think for trans allies to one another, um, there's so much stigma around mental health and substance use. And we tend to push people to the outskirts. So sometimes mm-hmm. we will get requests for, I have someone who's dealing with substance use and mental health and they need a trans support group, but the trans support groups aren't equipped to support folks that have a different level of functioning or a different way of seeing the world or are struggling. And so um, to not kind of further marginalize and push out folks that um, have different backgrounds and have different levels of mental health or substance use and to really pull them in because they need that connection. We all need to be connecting to one another and supporting one another to improve our community's mental health. I feel like we have responsibility to one another in that way. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. 
so my last question, which you may have just answered, uh, and I'm not sure if this is a useful question or not. Um, what's the future of this work? You all have talk, talked us through an amazing progression, uh, both historically and in your own sort of practices. So what's the future of this work for you all? For the work or for us personally or? Both or any way you want to enter that is okay. It's a very nebulous thought. <laughs> um, you know, we, we're continually fighting for places to collect data on the community because yeah. um, as grant-funded positions, you don't have a grant unless there's the data to support that grant. Mm -hmm. um, and so you know, continuing to struggle against the administration for recognition and um, inclusion so that we can be a part of censuses, so we can be a part of, you know, youth data surveys and things like that um, is, is like a numero uno fight for me, I think, um, because it, it, everything else really domino hinges on, on that, like making sure that, that the numbers are there. Um, and then I think, you know, it's, we, we get snippets of data from time to time that can be alarming to people who aren't in this community specific work. So like specific to LGBTQ substance use, if you would look at a piece of data that said that, um, you know, kids, LGBTQ kids smoke at a higher rate than um, non LGBTQ kids, you know, something like that. And that was just like one example. Um, it can be alarming, but knowing that like, and reminding yourself that those numbers may not have changed as much as you think they have, because where was the data and who were they asking before? And so it can look really large. Luckily for us, when it looks larger, we get more money. Um, <laughs> so, um, but you know, recognizing that there's a lot of, there's a lot of good things in there too. And continuing to find the good data to remind people um, that like when a school has a GSA, um, kids are less likely to experiencing um, bullying and, you know, more likely to graduate from school. And when there's comprehensive anti-bullying and, um, you know, protective policies for the LGBTQ kids specifically, they're more successful in school. They're more involved. They um, continue on to higher education. They um, achieve more. They're, they are more likely to be leaders in their GSA, um, which is likely to be strong. And, you know, all these really awesome things. So continuing to focus on those and remind people that like, this is little, like all you got to do is start a club after school. Like that's it. Yeah. And you can, you can change the trajectory of like all of these kids lives um, and provide a safe and supportive space for them so that they're less likely to face the things that can um, impact their mental health because nobody is um, just, depressed or using substances because they're LGBTQ. That's not it. We always say that. That's not it. That's right. not the reason. It's everything else that they're facing by the rest of the world and what they're saying about being LGBTQ. That's the issue. Like, these kids are perfect, as is, and you should want more of them. Um, <laughs> but just reminding them that, you know, this isn't, this isn't about them. Like, this isn't, this isn't a problem with a person. This is a problem with everybody else treating that person. Yeah. A certain way. Well said. Oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that for me, there are a couple of things. Definitely, um, I'm always yelling about policy and data, so I won't, I think, answer that perfectly. 
Um, I, I think for the policy piece, so that we need to get providers not scared of talking about what's happening. Um, people are really like, am I lobbying now? Am I being political? Am I taking a stance? Um, and we always kind of hint, like I'll mention something about somebody tweeting and everyone laughs in the room because they know who I'm talking about. Like, it's not a secret. They know that I'm talking about Trump's latest policy tweet that, right. you know, shook everything up. Um, but they do, they're they afraid to speak up within their organizations. They're afraid to address it directly. Um, and they're just not sure what they can do. And so being able to engage on that side um, and then really being able to see more of the folks impacted by the work that we do leading the work that we want to see. Um, so we need more voices of those that are dealing with substance use, that those that are survivors of suicide attempts or have, have lost loved ones for what they think is going to work, um, because often that's also disconnected. Here, I think that you need this to feel better, and I think this message is going to work. And um, we try to be so cognizant of suicide safe prevention messaging, which is important. Um, but sometimes I wonder if the message can get sterilized or lost because we're no longer speaking in the language that they need to hear it. So trying to mm-hmm. find ways that we can engage folks who are directly impacted to tell us what they need to happen in their mental health settings or in the community, um, what they think would work. We have um, have approached like harm reduction coalitions to see how can we how can we do that work too? Like, what does harm reduction in mental health look like? Mm. And I think that's a scary conversation to have. But, you know, is there a way to kind of tie in that approach? And and certainly there is room for that absolutely in, in substance use. But we're not necessarily funded for harm reduction. And there's a very clean and sterile message about abstinence use. And so oh, wow. we have to be more realistic about where youth are. Yeah. They already know terms. They already know what they're doing. They already... it's. Yeah. They've been through a lot. They're teaching us every day new new words for all sorts of things. <laughs> we go to a school, we learn five new terms for sure. Uh, we're like, wait, why? what does that mean? Um, so wanting to see them. One of you is furiously taking notes. Yes, seriously. We do it on purpose because we're like, hey, <laughs> we're really old. Like, what are the kids saying these days? And I, every time I've asked, we've heard one that I have not heard before. Wow. Um, so it's really, it's really to keep me young. <laughs> it's nice. the elixir of life. So hip. <laughs> <hit. You're> so <laughs> Adolescence. Tell me. Tell me what are the terms? Yes, teach teach me, children. Hey, fellow um, kids. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, you could not pass for a kid if you tried. <laughs> You're ginormous for one. <laughs> and I get lost in the hallways. They're like, little boy, where is your class? Come back I have here. To keep, I have to keep like a hold on Isaac because they're like, um... Yeah. It was yesterday. Somebody came out and was like, "They told it, the teacher told us to stay in the room," and I was like, "Isaac, she is not talking to me." <laughs> She's looking right at me. Like, Get back in here. She's right. talking to you, buddy. <laughs> no, no, but thanks for thinking so. <laughs> uh, I think mental health is like our favorite thing to yeah. to actually talk about and do some prevention on because, like I said before, so much can fit into it. So it can be. Like, hey, we know you're going home for Christmas, or, or sorry, maybe you're going somewhere near family for Christmas, and that can be hard in and of itself. Like, maybe you are needing to go back into a closet, or maybe you're needing to downplay your um, yourself and just not be yourself. We had one person tell us that they had an entire separate bag for clothes that they would wear in the Midwest, <laughs> um, which, like, shame on you, Midwest. Um 
but that was like what they felt that they needed for safety so that no questions would arise. And so, you know, doing things like, Hey, that, that stinks, but you know what? We made up queer bingo and you can, you can check off each box of things that you see along the way. Like, um, you know, things that you see that might remind you of, of being yourself and, and, um, kind of give you a, a laugh in the face of that, you know, uncomfortableness or, um, moment where you can't be yourself. So we, we can do that. We can do crossword puzzles. We do self-care. We teach them how to journal. What are you doing for yourself? You know, um, reminding, especially with youth, I talk about youth cause that's my favorite part. Um, adults freak me out, <laughs> but talking with youth and reminding them like, you're still kids. Like, let's make this more fun. Like you shouldn't have to worry about substance use. You shouldn't have to worry about all of these other things. Like I'm here to just remind you that you can be a kid and that in and of itself is some mental health self care. So mm -hmm. that's my favorite part. Yeah. And then just like the common sense stuff, like if you are able to be, who you are, you're going to be healthier. Like, right. whoa, we needed like lots of money and data to tell us that. Shocking. I know. <laughs> what? When, when I call you the name that you want to be called by, your mental health improves. Um, Weird. Imagine that. Yeah. And so Dignity like. Dignity being the thing that affirms like, what? your general well-being. That doesn't that make thing. sense. I don't get it. Um, and for parents, I think to know that too, that their kids can be happy and joyful and beautiful mm -hmm. and um wear their hairs in a million different colors and wear tutus and wear tie whatever they want to do like that's going to help them be happy um and then give them the opportunity to show that for themselves and i think that there's some really cool adult trans data that shows when you get to be a mentor to other trans folks that improves your mental health and brings down your suicide risk so i think our programs can look they don't have to be sitting in a classroom i'm going to tell you these things but they can start to be a little bit more creative. I think we heard today about a community building a garden together um, and how that brought to connection and joy. And so what are some of those like creative ways that we already see the arts communities doing and um, literary community doing and music and all these other pieces. If you're doing that, you're doing suicide prevention. You're building connection. You're making support. Um, we're just here to throw some additional stats and information in there. Um, to show you how that's building connection, or, or you know that already just inherently, but for other people to know that these things also need to be prioritized in creative ways. Yeah, I think that is like, that's so true. Like as humans, we, you know, if you really get down to it, you do inherently know like how to make somebody feel better. Right. You also know how to make somebody feel worse, but like feeling better, knowing the things to do, the ways to bring people into community, like as social workers, um, and as professionals, like our job is to bring in that data and say, like, no, you're doing really awesome. Like, this is really great. Here's the good, the good things that you're doing. Here's the data that shows that. So a lot of times we're trying to track down statistics that can prove, like, why it's cool for us to have an ice cream social. So, <laughs> like, that's yeah, that's it. Also, like, I mean, studies show that when you have a full stomach, you learn better and, you know, all, all two those out of, Two out of two trans podcasters. Yeah. That that's we great. That ice cream. Cream socials, yeah, absolutely. But um, just and finding those ways to build community outside of any kind of um, substance use. Again, not mm. not shaming or blaming, but like enough with the bars, you know. Like yeah. we need to find ways that we can create environments 
to show our kids that like when you get to be an adult you get to do these other really awesome things that have absolutely nothing to do with your identity or substances like you can just be you walking your dog yeah and i think that even that work even in the bars limits people going there or changes the way that people interact with bars instead of being a place to sort of work out your isolation, your fear, your shame, um, maybe being a place of like community or turning into restaurant bars or yeah. bars and bookstores or, you know, with also a coffee bar or something that is more inclusive and more um, life affirming than just a, a what LGBT bars have been in our history, a place to hide, right? And a place yeah. to, yes, find community, but also um, a place where all that where all the negative impact of society also comes in, unfortunately. Yeah. Bringing that to light and like, to like, you know, putting the light on it and making sure that it's not seedy yeah. or hiding yeah. and like really using that for the community, yes. um, which can be done. It's just, it's, it's a lot of conversations about like healthy habits that like, in yeah. again, not shaming or blaming, right. but like moderation, right? Like we all like, you can't talk to a doctor without them saying moderation to you. Like <laughs> get a moderate amount of sleep with a moderate amount of vegetables and a moderate amount of water and you'll be good. So <laughs> like teaching kids that from the start so yeah. that they're not turning those places or, or are not okay with those places being that way anymore. Like, no, right. this is my bar, but I meet my friends here for movie trivia every yes. Tuesday. Right. And I don't drink during that. I right. eat, I come for the burgers and the friends, like, right. yeah. you know, and knowing that that's, that's an option. Like you yeah. can opt in as an adult to drink instead of it being like a, obviously mandatory, like right. this is what we do. Yeah. Uh, thank you both for being on the pod with us. Thank you both for sharing your expertise, your experience as professionals um, and most of all, thank you for the work that you do, uh, making our community safer, happier, and healthier. healthier. Uh, we, I think, are honored to be your friends and uh, mm -hmm. really have mm -hmm. a lot of admiration and respect for the work that you do. Thank mm -hmm. you. I really appreciate you creating this space to dive into these topics and um, bring some of these things that we often just kind of hide and don't want to share because it does, it puts you in a vulnerable place. Yeah. Um, so I hope that your listeners get, um, get some information and... Um, can know that there's there's hope there's other there's other things that you can connect to and that there's uh we'll always have a place for you mm -hmm. Anne and i will take care of you for sure <laughs> i want as many gabies as kittens <laughs> all, all that's, great that's gonna be a lot of kittens, <laughs> yeah. A lot of kittens. <laughs> yeah um but yeah thank thank you for having us and for for doing this work it is super important and there are people out there for you and and you can ex like i i guess my parting message would be like expect more like expect more of people like demand better like demand what you need and ask for what you need and and don't take anything less than that because you are worth way way more than you're asking for i guarantee you this might be the best parting words i've ever had yeah just saying well thank you for being here it's time for closing credits. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Michael Soto. And me, Sam Garman. Thank you for listening. Uh, make sure that you hit subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. Our music is by Skylar Kurgle. Check him out at SkylarKurgle.com where you can see what he's up to and link to all his social.
We want to hear from you. You can connect with us on transformpod.com or on Facebook at transformpod. We appreciate your questions and feedback. Email us at transformpod at gmail.com. We really encourage your thoughtful and positive feedback. If you disagree with us, that's fine, but we will not engage in any name-calling or dehumanizing talk, so please just don't do it. Thanks for going beyond the transition with us. Please tell me a story.